0: The challenge for a startup is professional services versus product. Professional services pays cash right away, and it's nice cash. My one partner refers to it as crack. You can easily get yourself hooked, and we kept fighting that. And we built some really cool things on top of our platforms for some some very well-known companies. But that wasn't going to scale. What we kept pushing on the product and ourselves was to keep getting the box smaller and smaller so that we could focus on one thing and sell at scale. My name is Ron Rock, the co-founder and CEO of Microshare.
1: This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Ron Rock took an everyday sensor from the IoT world and created sensing as a service. All this and more on Code Story. Born and raised in Philly, Ron Rock put himself through college, working at Denny's as a midnight chef, and started his first business when he was in his 20s. He spent a lot of time restoring old furniture and cars. In fact, when he was a kid, he was the guy all his friends brought their 10-speed bikes to, which of course changed to cars as they got older. Post his other successful startups, one of which he sold to Accenture, he was intrigued by the space at the intersection of cloud and mobile. He set out to combine disparate data sources, and when he started to pursue this, he noticed that IoT sensors were going to put his core mission on steroids. Four years ago, his company pivoted to be solely focused on IOT and commercial real estate to create smart and connected facilities. This is the creation story of MicroShare.
0: MicroShare was something that the two co-founders, Tim Panagas and Charles Amal, along with myself, we had founded a company back in 2003 called Knowledge Roles. And we grew that company globally and we sold it to Accenture in 2010 and our clients were some of the biggest companies in the world none of us were really cut out to stay at Accenture more than we had to and we were intrigued eight years ago with the intersection of cloud and mobile with enterprise if you think about it big companies have spent the last 30 years and a trillion dollars locking everything down And literally overnight they're being asked to incorporate the cloud, use things like salesforce.com and DocuSign. And they're being asked to let their employees use smartphones, bring your own device to work. And so the genesis of MicroShare was we were gonna help companies begin bridging all of these data sources to come together and be manageable, secure, and we were gonna leverage the experience that we had from our last company and our last group of clients. Along the way, one of our largest customers was getting into IoT, Internet of Things. And they were, in particular, going after these low-power sensors. Sensors that were five and seven-year battery life, typically less than $50. And with those kind of economics, you could put sensors on virtually anything. And we realized that IoT was taking our core mission, bringing lots of disparate data together, from multiple sources and making it usable in a secure way, we realized that internet of things was just going to take that and put it on steroids. So about three and a half years ago, we pivoted, we left the standard enterprise sharing business and we went solely into IOT and with IOT, it can really be anything. There's so many possibilities and as an entrepreneur, you have to, as hard as it is, you have to focus. And after a lot of trial and error, we decided to focus on commercial real estate. And included with commercial real estate, we talk about hospitals without touching the patient, airports without touching the plane, college campuses, warehouses, manufacturing. Anywhere there's a physical building in the world, we are censoring up with solutions like occupancy, predictive cleaning, environmental monitoring, leak detection, refrigeration monitoring, all those types of things. And so that's really been the focus of of what has helped the company explode in the last 18 months.
1: Well, let's dig into the first product, so the MVP product, right? How long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? This
0: is the first company that I've started that cloud was available. And boy, what a game changer. You know, I talk about when I started my company back in 2003, I needed a couple hundred thousand dollars and four months to put up a server room. And suddenly that's all done for about $50 a month. So we started out with Amazon Web Services. We subsequently ported over to Microsoft Azure and Microsoft has become our, our largest partner now. Most of the tools that we used were our software that we had built over, over many, many years, and then web services. On top of that, again, there's so many different manufacturers of sensors And what we discovered in talking to clients, the tip of the spear for buildings, for physical space is occupancy. If people don't show up, there's nothing to clean. For the most part, nothing breaks. There's no energy consumption. There's no fighting over the parking lot. There's no danger of bad air quality. So you think about all of the resources that go into making a building alive. The tip of the spear is occupancy. And if I can drive real time at any moment, how many people are in my building, and very specifically, where in my building are they? I can begin to derive all kinds of other value and insights from that. So our MVP started out with one of the large utility companies over in London. We put occupancy sensors under all of their desks. They were under a lot of pressure to build new office space and all the various department heads would be saying, hey, we need space, this is crazy. And, and the people responsible for facilities had a hunch that they weren't using all the space that they already had. And yet the typical way that you would solve that is you'd get a bunch of college interns, they would show up with clipboards and they would physically count for a week or two how many people came into your building and where they went. Well, no matter when you did that study, when you reported the results, If a manager heard an answer they didn't like, they'd say, well, well, wait a minute. That wasn't a normal week. That was a week of fill-in-the-blank. So we came in and put sensors on hundreds of desks throughout one of their buildings in the suburbs of London. And suddenly we had the real data, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, exactly how was the space being used? And guess what we discovered? His hunch was right. Turns out they were only at about 55% utilization. It's just that there were places in the building that were very popular and employees gravitated to those and they were overcrowded. And there were other parts of the building that nobody cared for and they they weren't utilized. And so by using this data, they were able to rather than spend millions building a new campus, they were able to spend lesser money and improve the space that wasn't being used and begin managing the overall utilization of their space. So that was our MVP. And there were a lot of speed bumps along the way, you know, sensors falling off the bottom of desks, sensors not sensing. The data to pull all this together is extremely complicated. There's a sensor that senses, there are airwaves that that sensor needs to get its signal to a particular kind of gateway. And then there's all kinds of different formats of the data. The data is encrypted and secure. There's different manufacturers. And so pulling all that data together today looks so simple. But under the hood took a lot of heavy lifting and a lot of hard learning. And it took us a couple of years to really figure it all out.
1: So, how did you progress the product from that point? You know, you built built the MVP, you went through the process, you got some data, you ran through, you know, ran through some problems of sensors not sensing and falling off. How did you progress and mature the product from there?
0: One of the things that we discovered, there are so many startups out there that build products that they're really not products they're neat features they're features or their functions or their platforms but they're not products and we were aspiring to build a product company and i was with a client in dublin ireland and he was walking me through his building and he had one system monitoring the air conditioning another monitoring the security system then they are really big on leads you know, sustainability, clean environment type opportunities. So he started showing me all of these sensors around carbon monoxide and, and air quality and energy consumption and temperature. And every system that he showed me was a one hit wonder. And I was just adding to his problem because I'm saying, hey, I've got a great solution for occupancy. And I suddenly realized that to make their life easier and for us to really hit the accelerator and growth, I don't want one smart thing. I want a smart building. You know, as consumers, I don't know if you've got a Nest thermostat or Google camera system or Alexis system, right? But, you know, Alexis and Siri are trying their best to start making all this stuff come together. That's what we want. We, we want a smart home, we want a smart building, we want a smart city. Not a lot of smart stuff. The last thing I want is yet another app on my phone for my smart home. I just want one button that says, I'm leaving. Have it, make sure the dog's in, turn the thermostat down, make sure the windows are locked, lock the door, all those different things. And that was really our epiphany, that occupancy wasn't enough. We needed to move into predictive cleaning, environmental monitoring, indoor asset tracking, leak detection. And if we could do all of this with a single dashboard, a single point of data, and oh, by the way, realize that you may not want us as your dashboard. Maybe you've already picked Schneider Electric or or Johnson Controls as your command center for your giant skyscraper or your college campus. So we needed to make sure that all of our consolidated data could just as easily be consumed into their platform, or we could easily take their data and put it into our platform. And that's what began to build out our product roadmap. And so understanding how to make the products faster, easier to implement, cheaper to run, easier to understand. You know, I like the Mark Twain statement. I'd have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have that much time. The complexity under the covers to make something look so simple to use is massive. That's how we started to evolve So that today, we have a leadership position in the IoT space for smart buildings, commercial real estate. Big players are starting to jump in, but we just won a huge deal in Australia. They evaluated us against the top companies in the world doing this. They not only said we outperformed in every feature, but we were also half the price. So that entrepreneur's dream of best product, lowest cost, you can't get any better than that.
1: Well, let's jump into your team a little bit then. So you know, we, we talked about product progression. We talked about roadmap a little bit. How did you build your team? What did you look for in those people to indicate these are the winning horses to join your team with MicroShare?
0: Well, th- there's really two segments to that question. The first, my analogy is I'm that rock, that boulder rolling down the hill, gathering moss as I go. People stick to me, and they stick to me for a long time. Half of my team right now are people I actually worked with in the 80s, then the other half are people I worked with in the 90s. Then there's a group of people that I started my previous company with, and a lot of my former colleagues at Accenture are chomping at the bit to to join the band again as we grow. So there's my personal network, and I can't emphasize enough to entrepreneurs and young people coming into the business world, maintain those relationships. Stay in touch, the tools are so easy today. You know, Back before that, it was phone calls, it was dropping them a note physically before email, but keeping that network is huge because you get to a point where if you've done your job right, people respect you and you respect them and you can make that phone call and you know where to go. We're getting ready for a massive global expansion next year and I worked with a woman in the late 90s, who then went to a couple Silicon Valley tech firms and expanded them globally. One of them, she hired over 1,500 people in 12 months. I've been in touch with her consistently over the last decade. I just reached out to her to say, hey, what are you doing? I think we might need you to join MicroShare. That's a big source. The other one then is defining your culture because we have started to hire a lot of people that I frankly didn't know 24 months ago. And a lot of them are 20s and early 30s, global, a lot of young people from France, Germany, Holland, the Netherlands, that you have to know your culture. You can train people on certain skill sets, but they have to have the right kind of culture. And for us, the culture is you have to be self-reliant. You have to be able to figure out on your own what you're gonna do. You have to be okay knowing that you don't have a specific job description. You are under-resourced, understaffed from the day you start the company, probably till the day you exit. You are always understaffed. So you need to build a culture where people know how to be fluid, move from sales to support to, to whatever it may be, and be singularly focused on winning successful customers. And so that's really the litmus test we use, and it's been very successful. One of our top guys, his degree is in psychology he is now doing technical support frontline for our customers and he's leading technical support so now we're hiring people under him and he has nothing in his degree nothing about him before he was 22 years of age that said this is the job he should have but he had the right dna and he's just shot right to the top
1: let's flip into scalability of the technology so did you build this to scale efficiently from the beginning or were you fighting this post MVP kind of as you grew?
0: The challenge for a startup is professional services versus product. Professional services pays cash right away and it's nice cash. my one partner refers to it as crack. And so you can easily get yourself hooked on professional services and you begin selling your product where every customer needs to customize the product and that customization is expensive. And we kept fighting that and our, our DNA as a team, we love professional services. We're thought leaders. We, that, that's what we've done for most of our lives. In the early days, we had a lot of one-off projects that were you know, million dollar projects, but they weren't repeatable. And we built some really cool things on top of our platforms for some, for some very well-known companies. But that wasn't going to scale. What we kept pushing on the product and ourselves was to keep getting the box smaller and smaller so that we could focus on one thing that we could rinse and repeat and sell at scale. And that's where we are today. So if you go to our website, you're going to see a bunch of products that you can buy. I like to say tongue in cheek, Noah, Most of my customers can't spell IOT. They don't know or care that that's what they're buying. They're buying business solutions, occupancy, predictive cleaning. Now with COVID-19, we have universal contact tracing, wearables that allow you to know if employees have been closer than six feet for more than 10 minutes over the last two weeks, which is a huge global demand right now. Marrying that with Bluetooth beacons to track where people have been. So if you have folks with COVID-19, you can know where to deep clean and all of that i'm selling the exact same product now in every continent in 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 the world is buying them Uh, it's the exact same product whether you're in coal mining whether you're in retail banking whether you're a college university it's the exact same product and that is the combustion key that's when you really get to grow a company our pricing is the same for everybody we're selling now through partners our partner pricing is the same for everybody we share our pricing here's the discount you get based on the term of your contract because we do sensing as a service you sign up for anywhere from 12 to 60 months and the volume so you've leveled the playing field on making it easy to understand easy to buy we also did a lot of work to take all the variability out of extras imagine leasing a car You sign all the paperwork, you go out to drive away, and the car has no tires on it. And they say, oh, no, no, oh, no, we're not a tire company. you got to go down the street and get tires for it. Well, that's the way IoT was. There was gateways, communication, backhaul, web services, applications on the front. We bundled all that together with simple out-of-the-box apps. We have some clients you can install hundreds of desks and be up and running in a few hours with the data flowing on your phone. And so that's the, the way that we've pushed the product to scale. Now that we've shrunk it, now we start adding more and more features to the product, to that idea that we started with. People are gonna jump in to this IoT space. We're the leader right now. The market is exploding. Really, COVID-19 has added to the growth. And so folks like Amazon are jumping in, folks like PWC are jumping in, and we now have to take our core platform and product and keep making the features better and better so that we continue to win business like we did a few weeks ago, where they say, you guys checked every box. You're the best feature that there is. So we're very much built for scale.
1: Well, as you step out on the balcony and look across all that you've built with MicroShare, what are you most proud of?
0: You know, we, we went through a couple really rough years when we were building really cool stuff and nobody wanted it. And it was just, you, you know, you, one of the challenges of being an entrepreneur, you you see the future before other people do. You see opportunity, you know where the market's going. My team and I have always been way ahead of the skis. And all of a sudden, uh, it's a combination of very specific events over the last two years. We have created a product that people want. The traffic on our website, you met Mike Moran as we as we started this conversation. You know, Mike joined and has been really hitting the the gas on all of social media, all of the website. And it is so much fun every day, right now, waking up to a HubSpot report that tells me who hit our website yesterday. And it's all over the world. It's major recognized companies, it's governments. We, we actually built something people want and need. And that's, as an entrepreneur, that is a great feeling.
1: Let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: Gosh, (laughs) I have such a vast catalog of content to pull from on that question. I guess one of the mistakes I made with MicroShare, and I've made big mistakes with every startup that I've ever done. I I think mistakes are part of the game. A mentor a long time ago, Uh, said to me fail fast cheap that's the best thing you can do fail fast cheap because failing means you learn something fast means you didn't waste a lot of time doing it and hopefully you didn't spend a lot of money along the way and if you can do that consistently you're going to be a great entrepreneur i think one of the mistakes we made that hurt us is we thought we had a product that really wasn't validated in the market we only had a little bit of evidence to say that it was going to be a success and we ramped the company up to about 40 employees to support that product. That's a rough ride because you're 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 bringing in people, you're disrupting their lives, you're getting them on a new career path only to find that the business just wasn't there. We had a couple anomalies that that made us think we had a business and then as you think you have a business and it's not quite working out, everybody starts weighing in on what's wrong. And so you, you lose sight of the goal for a period of time. There's confusion. There's friction between you and your partners and some of your staff, because you know, people go home at night, knowing that what they're doing, nobody wants, or it's not quite what they want. And we had a couple early customers that we built product for and they came back and said, this isn't good at all. And and so there was a lot of, a lot of soul searching and reckoning there. And I, I think. I keep learning all the time as an entrepreneur and, and I sometimes you relearn lessons. I think the number one thing you have to do is make sure you've got a scalable business model before you start spending your precious resources, being time and money, going after an idea. Too often, we don't see the forest for the trees because we're in the weeds, we're in the trees too deep. And I think that is something that certainly happened to MicroShare uh, in the last It'll be eight years this December since I started the company, and I would say about three years ago we were in the weeds and we were struggling to figure that out. And so I go back to fail fast cheap. We did a whole bunch of fail fast cheaping, and that's how we got our our, our sights and our vision realigned. And that's how we discovered our scalable business model and, and hit the ground running.
1: So what does the future look like for the product and for your team?
0: I think about that every day. You know, there's there's so many opportunities right now. You know, we started the company thinking that we had a cool technology and we'd probably go do another strategic acquisition like we did with Accenture and kind of rinse and repeat, make people a lot of money, give them a lot of material for their LinkedIn profiles. And, you know, we all have other interests that we'd like to pursue. Then the company starts to take off and then combustion hits. Then something like COVID-19 happens and everything changes. And so right now, you know, we, we came into 2020 uh, off of our best quarter ever in Q4 of last year. And all of a sudden, our biggest clients stopped buying. Some of our biggest investors backed down. We had a major reconciliation of what are we going to do with this company? And out of it, we came up with a COVID-19 response, clean equals safe. It's a, it's a bundling of six of our products to allow people to reoccupy whether it be colleges or warehouses or hospitals or distribution centers, how do you bring people back to work safely? And with that, everything we lost in Q1 has come back plus some, and now the growth is almost unmanageable. And so you suddenly have opportunities for, would you wanna IPO this thing? Could we create something worth a billion dollars in the next 18 to 24 months? It's possible. It's just that possible and in my entire career I've never had something that could be worth a billion be a unicorn. Rarely do you see a unicorn let alone have a chance to capture one and we find ourselves right now in that space. And at the same time there are lots of large companies out there who are clearly sniffing around looking at whether or not to try to acquire us. So we're in a position right now where the only thing we can do in the next four quarters is focus on execution, close these sales and deliver our destinies in our own hands. And then we can decide, do we want to pursue a strategic acquisition? Or do we want to pursue raising a whole lot of money, throwing the gas on a global expansion plan. So we're leaving our options open. I can tell you that when I was 50, uh, I sold Uh, my company to Accenture. It was, it was very rewarding financially and I retired for a few years. I I learned some valuable lessons. And one of the most important is I don't ever want to retire again. So I'm not looking for an opportunity to stop working or to kick back or to relax. Neither are my partners and they're considerably younger than I am. So I think that we are probably going to see what kind of company we can build over the next three to five years And at the same time, figure out along the way how to provide liquidity and returns for some of my early investors, because at the end of the day, you have to take care of everybody here. And we need to figure out a way to take money off the table to fuel your life while at the same time keeping the company and trying to get it to be all it can be. So our options are open.
1: So who influences the way that you work, Ron? A CEO, CTO, architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why.
0: Noah, this is related, I think, to, to the question about uh, you know, my thoughts on entrepreneurship. Over the last two decades, I have been most enamored with guys like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. And while that sounds like such a cachet response, it, it's, it's not because of what they do or the financial success that they've personally achieved but it's because they have established themselves from day one as running independent of their investors, of Wall Street, of the overall community. I remember Jeff Bezos and the press that he was getting back when him and his wife started Amazon from nothing. And he was gonna keep fueling the growth and Wall Street was beating him up and the stock price was plummeting and he stood firm because the investors don't run your company, you do. Elon Musk, the same thing. We've seen all of the ups and downs that he's taken over the last 10 years. And we see the the stock. But think about the money that Wall Street and pension funds and people have made from Elon Musk's vision. And he never once makes an apology or a concession because the money people are trying to drive the company. And so I believe that is so important as an entrepreneur as well. You have to be careful that your investors don't come in and manage to get board seats, and manage to get control, and suddenly the money people are running your company.
1: If you could go back to the beginning, what would you consider doing differently, or where would you consider taking a different approach?
0: Within the first six months of starting the company, we had this technology platform built. We, I mean, we've continued to improve it, but you know, we knew what we were going to do to get going. And I was so proud of it, and I went out to Silicon Valley, Sand Hill Road, one of the top VCs, and they granted me an audience because of prior successes and i went in and i was on about slide three of ten slides and this guy took the deck tapped it on the table kind of threw it across the conference room so the pages spread out over the table and he said ron i don't invest in technology i only invest in scalable business models anything you can dream up i can build so it's not the technology it's the business model and I left that meeting feeling bruised and battered. And I and I thought, boy, what a jerk. I got to tell you, Noah, in the last three years on reflection, he's the smartest guy I met. And so there's a recurring theme in our interview here today. Scalable business model is all that matters. And he's right. If you come up with a really clever idea, the power of Azure and the power of AWS, the availability of global, highly skilled workers at very low cost the globalization of how to make things like that happen it sounds almost sacrilegious to say to high-tech entrepreneurs but the tech doesn't matter figure out what people are willing to buy and buy a lot of it and then with that singular focus start deploying all that great technology so we led with technology we're, we're a bunch of smart guys where people would say oh you you know do you like being the smartest guys in the room? Well, no, because the smartest guys in the room think about the technology too much. What you got to be is the, the guys like Mike Moran, guys that, that are marketing, you know, ha- have a finger on the pulse of what's going on. Guys like Steve Jobs, guys like Elon Musk. Yeah, they use technology to do amazing things. But the things they do, people want to buy at scale. They've got scalable business models. And that's that's the thing I would do differently. And if i were going to start another company i would i would live that so strict i wouldn't have technology people at the table until we were very clear on what's our scalable business model
1: last question ron you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing they're jazzed about it they can't wait to show it off to the world um and, and Based on your last answer, I I may have an idea of where you're going to go here. But what advice would you give that person having gone down this road multiple times?
0: You're right, right? The first one is scalable business model. Get that right. And that's that's critical. But the other thing, if if that entrepreneur is the founder and the CEO, you got to get your money straightened out. Here's a sad truth. You're going to spend 70% of your time for the next 10 years raising money. It's going to be brutal. And it's going to have nothing to do with your product or your business. There's so many different avenues to go. There are so many traps that you can fall into taking the wrong money from the wrong people because you think it makes sense at the time. You also always need more money than you think. I love talking to entrepreneurs that say, I just need a million dollars. The minute they say that, I can tell them with 100% certainty, no, you need five. You need five because you don't know what you don't know. And so the business and the money side of being an entrepreneur is usually shielded from 80% of your employees, 80% of your team. But for your senior team and for you at the top, the money never stops. And it is the thing that will keep you up at night. It is the thing that will aid you the most. It is the thing that you will struggle with the most. I've learned something in the last few years that, that I, I try to instill in younger entrepreneurs and this is a mind bend this is hard for them to actually grasp the money people need you probably more than you need them we tend to approach as entrepreneurs going to the money community with a little bit of a hat in hand groveling hoping that they'll say yes in the economy today the world's flooded with liquidity and people with money have a problem what do they do with their money put it in a bank account and earn one percent put it in the stock market and maybe earn 15% a year, but with all the risk of it dropping, put it in bonds and earn 3%. People need alternative investments that have a shot at giving them 50, 70, 90% returns. They can't bet all their money with that, but they're all taking a percentage of their portfolio and doing that. You need to learn to walk in to the money people in your life, whether it be VCs, private equity, high net worth individuals, family offices, walk head held high you have something they desperately need and if you can do that you can form a partnership with money and you're going to be fine if you don't do that you're going to find yourself typically with VCs that have all kinds of hooks into their deals that will haunt you and hurt you and hurt the progress of your company for a long time for the young entrepreneur sitting on the plane next to me That's where we can share a beer and and, and have some real, because I'm sure the technology is great. He or she wouldn't be that excited if it wasn't. That's awesome. But if you get the money wrong, your dreams get killed. That's fantastic advice.
1: Well, Ron, thank you for being on the show. Thank you for telling the creation story of MicroShare.
0: It was my pleasure. Thank you, Noah, for the great questions.
1: And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story